This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. In the last episode, uh, I was talking about history and the state. I was talking about how the state often attempts to monitor and to supervise how history should be written and consumed by the ordinary normal people. Yet, the state indeed cannot all the time control how history is written or how it circulates. Let us in this episode talk about how people themselves make history. And it is also time to talk about a particular means of communications. Let's say Zoom. Over the last six months, Zoom, House Party or Skype or generally any other avenue or platform for video calling has become a very major concern all over the world. In this episode, we talk about a history of video calling and how people made their history. In addition or in supersession to what the state wanted them to talk about. Let's get right into the episode then. History Chatter, episode 4 about the old blighty films. Now, Zoom, House Party or Skype have become integral to life in the age of COVID-19. There are debates about how far it is possible to convey or transmit human warmth by means of video calls. They are hardly a convincing substitute for uh, spending time together in person. But we are not the first to resort to technology to bridge the gap, the distance between the ability to stay connected through screens uh, when circumstances force families or friends or acquaintances or teachers or students apart from one another. Indeed, uh, and and their, their anxiety to get in touch and stay connected. There are previous histories. They go back 80 long years. During the Second World War, uh, the so-called Forgotten Army or the British soldiers who fought alongside Allied forces in India and Myanmar, uh, at the time it was known as Burma, turned to new technology for moral and uh, social connections during the war and their experiences show us how valuable indeed screen time can be and it certainly was imperfect but then it also had its pluses its positive let us go back a little to the background all of the british empire became uh, involved in second world war india more importantly was critically uh, necessary to the British and it sent 2.5 million soldiers, that's 25 lakhs soldiers, 
to fight under the British command and uh, it supplied billions of pounds in financing. Japan had invaded uh, the British colony of Myanmar in 1942 and it cut off uh, a supply line to China. That made Southeast Asia a major theater of the war. Eventually, of course, uh, the Allied forces restored Myanmar to British rule. To little effect, however, since India and Myanmar both became independent in 1947. The objective of Britain in, in the war in Southeast Asia was to reclaim its lost colony, that is Myanmar, and to prevent the Japanese invading India. The British soldiers faced uh, unique challenges. Malaria and dysentery were uh, particularly rife in Myanmar, and they were the monsoons and the humidity. It made for grueling conditions for all sides. At the same time, the soldiers were rarely granted leave because of the distance. It meant some soldiers spent up to six years away from their families. It is easy to understand what consequences that would have for the soldiers' morale or family relationships. Now, of course, they, they did get to write letters, uh, but that was a limited uh, liberty. Each soldier could only send up about eight letters by AML per month, and it took about three weeks to reach home. And uh, mail via ships took about three months. Someone had to do something about the lowering morale of the soldiers, and it was a, a major concern. So, uh, Major Jack Frost, who was a former BBC radio presenter, came upon a solution to boost the morale and a sense of connections across the distance. Uh, he walked out a film format. It would be called Calling Blighty. What did it actually involve? The army would shoot men or the handful of women who were uh, there too from the same region, delivering messages to their loved ones. And then they'd get in touch with uh, each of these soldiers' families at home, invite those families to a local cinema theater along with uh, other soldiers' families, and together they would watch the films. That uh, more or less is uh, the basic background of the Calling Blighty films. Um, art historian Steve Holly, who worked at uh, Manchester Metropolitan University, has uh, worked in depth uh, on what these films meant, their background, their impact, and indeed um, what they mean for a history of communication during the war. So who were these uh, soldiers? These films included, indeed, uh, revolved around men of the 14th Army of the Southeast Asia Command of the Imperial Army of Britain, of course, during the Second World War. Around 80 hours of 
those soldiers were shot, of which about 12 hours survive. And it had a particular meaning and context when they were produced on the one hand and when they were screened in cinemas at home on the other. Now, Steve Holly had um, restaged their screening 70 years later with cooperation uh, from Marion Hewitt, who is the director or was the director last year of Northwest Film Archive. Later, BBC Channel 4 also uh, made a documentary on their project and they called it Messages Home, Lost Films of the British Army. Holly uh, himself also made uh, a film on this episode called War Memorial. Holly's interest uh, primarily is how these films serves as um, an instrument of memory. How uh, do these films shot during the war works as an instrument to to um, recall a particularly uh, marginal incident, a particularly marginal phase of the Second World War for the British society. Now, he did in this context research the details of the production of these movies and later of their exhibition. They were made over um, two years. They filmed about 8,000 servicemen and of course a handful of women. Uh, they were filmed either in India or in Burma, Malaya and Singapore. The results were shown in, in local cinemas such as Regent Cinema in Sheffield or the Regal Twins on the Oxford Road, Manchester. They were highly emotional events for the families and wives of the men who often had been away for years. Many films were shot, of course, but 64 of them still survive. Uh, they were not exactly hidden from public view, but uh, they were scattered across a number of film archives in the United Kingdom. Little was known about them, and they were not publicly screened. In that context, uh, their re-screening, uh, fresh screening, became a major event once again, something that Holly himself partly organized and partly researched, and we will come to that part a little later. Let's uh, try and see how these films reflect a new kind of film culture during the Second World War that took root in Britain. As a matter of fact, uh, filmmaking in Britain during the Second World War had become a great new advantage and energetic enterprise. Apparently, by 1946, there were a remarkable 31 million cinema visits per week in, in Britain. Now, this calling blighty films were produced by uh, a government agency, an indirect uh, government agency, let's say. They're produced by Army Kinematograph Service, and somehow their management indirectly included Ministry of Information in Britain, particularly the Films Division. 
Films Division itself had been formed in September 1939. So one can easily see the connection between uh, the state and the making of some of these films. We have already briefly referred to that. So um, this AKS commissioned up to 150 films a year during the war. And it effectively became a training ground for people who had talent in making films and who later became very successful after the war, such as uh, Eric Ambler, Freddie Francis, Carol Reed, Peter Ustinov, Freddie Young and uh, a few others, Thrald Dickinson and so on. Um, some of these films which were made during the war became quite successful, but not quite these films, calling blighty films. Incidentally, uh, they were called together, calling blighty films, a certain genre of films. The word blighty, as a matter of fact, um, is Indian, in case we did not realize earlier. Blighty as an English word is pretty much a corruption of the Hindustani word Belayati. It had been used in India in the 19th century, but uh, roughly from the early 20th century, it changed meaning. And instead of someone from England or Europe, it came to mean uh, England when Englishmen referred to their, their country as Blighty. So Belayati became Blighty. So um, British themselves did not make too many commercial films, but they did make uh, a great number of documentary films during the Second World War. In fact, the making of documentary films received a great boost during the Second World War. The Calling Blighty films were not exactly documentary films, but they can uh, partly be classified as documentary too. They share some characteristics with documentary. They use a raw personal testimony and the organization of the scene, the background scene um, given to the shots and situations by, by the largely anonymous directors and producers are also uh, resonant of documentary filmmaking. As a matter of fact, the famous documentaries represent only a small proportion of, of wartime output. And there were an estimated 900 other films that were officially presented to the British public in, in wartime. The real significance of the old blighty films lies within their recording of the self-presentation of working men and women. These were men and women outside London at a time when um, the statement on film, as in characters speaking for themselves on film, um, without any script or hesitation, was an extremely rare trend. Indeed, um, the workers in documentaries at the time are depicted as though uh, they, they were shown from uh, what today would be regarded as a middle class establishment viewpoint. The attitude of the film is that the work is in itself ennobling and hence it is no part of the general purpose to get too close to working people as people. In other words, 
filmmaking, um, particularly in documentaries during the Second World War, did not show or would not typically show the working men or women speaking for themselves without some kind of a scripted mediation. But that does not happen in the Calling Blighty films. We do get close to working people as people, although um, in an artificial situation and where the content of what they say is less important than the fact that they're filmed saying it and they are seen by their relatives. They're closer to letters. They could be called film letters, home, letters to home in films or in their brevity. They were, they were small pieces. Um, they were often more like talking postcards. But despite this, they reveal much more about the men, their circumstances, their state of mind, and the subtext of the war they were engaged in than the simple format um, that the documentaries offered. The messages often exceeded, in other words, the limits of the format. There was a typical pattern of messages where a man would, would greet his hometown and relatives and say that he was doing fine, he was getting his mail regularly, and his introduction by the previous soldier and um, the message, Yarud's message to his family in Sheffield. Now, the previous soldier begins... Now, Mrs. Yarud, here's a surprise for you. And now Yarud begins. Hello, Joan, darling. How are you keeping? Well, I hope. And you, Winsome. Uh, this refers to his five-year-old daughter who also came to the screening 73 years later. We'll come to that. Uh, you, Winsome, you were quite a little girl when I left you. Possibly not recognizing your pop, are you? Still, I hope you're keeping well. Hello, mom and dad and Jean. Mail is coming through quite well. I'd like a lot more though. Well, cheerio for now. So, Lawrence was speaking from what appeared to be um, a canteen in India. Uh, there were men sitting at tables, drinking tea or beer, often wreathed in clouds of smoke and attended by Indian servants. And there were others playing cards or dirts in the background. In fact, the canteen was an elaborate film set at the Shri Sound Studios in Bombay, where men were gathered together from widely distant parts of India or Burma, sometimes from different regiments, but always from the same city or area. But uh, there were also another kind of old blighty films. They were not shot on location by, uh, they were indeed shot on location by mobile newsreel trucks with portable filming equipment. And these followed the men to camps and locations in the theater of war. The location films presented opportunities for creative treatment by the largely unknown directors of these films. And there are many examples of rather forced dramatic scenarios which act as a prologue to the men who then turn to the audience to deliver their messages. Uh, these quasi-fictional introductions um, sit awkwardly as, as framing devices uh, within um, what uh, were clearly direct addresses or conversations with their uh, members, family members at home.
Um, as I said earlier, the voices of the authentic working class people was almost unheard in the 1940s. And indeed, it would not be heard in British cinema until the late 1950s. In that sense, they are very, very important. What happens is they represent, as a, a scholar observed, a self-authored statement to the viewer with all the awkwardness and often stilted demeanor that is absent from contemporary filmic interviews. Uh, rather than um, seeing this as inauthentic, scholars have seen in these films a guarantee of what they called communicative honesty. As people who have no experience at all of speaking to the camera and probably little of public speaking of any kind, addressed the lens. And they are then viewed in the powerfully intimate and dark confines of the cinema theater. The illusion of naturalism is a false expectation. Their awkwardness, in other words, is a greater indication of their authenticity. The men in this film speak within a prescribed format, as we saw, but they speak spontaneously in their original accents and possibly for the first time ever in British film. So the soldiers were speaking spontaneously. But what really did they have to say? What did their messages convey to their children, to their family, wives and the neighborhood? There's much more that I wish to talk about the old Blighty films. But I need your indulgence a little more. I decided to have a second part of this podcast. That will be released to you later this weekend and certainly before the next week. So that's the end for today. This is your friend Onirban signing off History Chatter episode 4 part 1. Do remember to tell us what you like about it, what you do not like about it, any theme or issue that you'd like addressed in our future podcasts. And please remember to subscribe to History Chatter in Epilogue Media website, GeoSavan, indeed um, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you once again. Looking forward to the next episode of this podcast and the future episodes of History Chatter.